Good morning. My name is Susanna Hobbs, and today we'll be reading from Matthew 19, verses 1 through 12. It's found in your pew Bible on page uh, 824. That is found on page 823. (laughs) Okay, Matthew 18, verses 15 through 23. 23 or 23? 23. I'll get there. Okay. Listen to Susanna. (laughs) Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault, between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile, and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. This is the word of the Lord. Welcome to the Slick Show at Hope Community Church. Uh, that was all my fault. If you are been here, you know that's because we chose to slow down this passage a little bit, and that is the sermon calendar that I didn't update is why that's there. So that's totally my bad. Thanks, Susanna. You did fantastic. These guys are getting married this week, and we just want to throw some curveballs right at the end of it. <clears throat> all right. Well, I had other jokes prepared to start, but I am the joke, so let me just... Um, let me just start with prayer, and then we'll jump in. Holy moly. Jesus, uh, thank you for the church. Um, again, not to make too much of, that's no big deal, actually. Missing a passage is no big deal. Uh, but I'm thankful that we don't have to perform for your love. I'm thankful we don't have to prove ourselves worthy of your affection and attention. Thanks that you've done it all. I hope, actually, that some of the comedy there is a little bit healing for us to Take a deep breath and feel received by you. Would you now speak to us? Uh, we're trying to slow down and talk about what it means to be part of the church, and uh, there's a lot for us to learn, a lot of healing, a lot of correction, a lot of challenge. So would you, would you help? Would you speak this morning? Holy Spirit, would you speak clearly, we ask, through your word, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Hey, so we are slowing down a little bit. If you've been around, you've heard us talk about that. We're walking through the book of Matthew, and we would have been in chapter 19 if we didn't say, hey, let's hold on for a second and uh, just dig in a little bit to where we are culturally, where we are as a specific church, and where we are relationally to have an opportunity to talk about peacemaking, have an opportunity to talk about what does it mean to be part of a church that uh, both has hurt people and hurt us and also is meant to be a means of healing it's pretty complicated and tangled up, and so how do we 
do all of that when it comes down even to spaces of like authority and the church um, showing authority to remove somebody from the gathering and say hey, you're no longer acting like one of us like I just don't want to assume that's like easy to swallow and we just are going to say that and move forward I wanted to slow down and heal a little bit be challenged a little bit we said out loud that we can't fix all of it in a couple of sermons but what I want to do is plant some seeds that I think will make us healthy over time and, and I had in my mind the way even our particular context functions uh, I don't know if you're a transplant to Kansas City or if you grew up around here but Kansas City functions like a big small town there's a ton of connections and relationships and networks a lot of you guys went to like elementary school together or you went to the same uh, university and went to the same fraternity and sorority and got your job here because of that some of you guys have lived in the same zip code your whole life you you were born and went to school and work and now live kind of real close to where your parents house was like it's an amazing space and if you're from the outside looking in it can feel kind of charming there's like a midwestern charm to all of that it can also be uh, odd to observe a little bit when you come into someone else's small town you realize there's some beautiful things about that but there's also some challenging things about that so if you get into the history of kansas city not everything in this big small town has been awesome there's a lot of things that actually have some stain and some pain to them that's true kind of city planning level but it's also true of your personal life and so as we think about being a church that's committed to where we are in the city right here on state line trying to engage uh, kind of both sides of where we are and we think about god bringing people here we have a uh, relatively diverse age-wise, even if it's not with some backgrounds or ethnicities. There's, there's some diversity economically and politically. There's a lot happening in our body, and we've grown relatively fast in a short amount of time. And so this big, small town has kind of come to us. And so I'm mindful oftentimes as I meet you and talk with you, sometimes I'll ask, like, do you know anybody in the room? And I'm amazed. I'm like, yeah, I went to elementary school with them, or we were in the same college, or we were in the same early business together, or we work together now, or we were in another church together. The church scene in Kansas City is actually pretty fascinating, and as I've been here now for about 15 years, I've learned a lot about just kind of the spiritual climate in Kansas City, and there's a history actually of amazing churches in our city. Like there's a lot of beautiful people that have been given to the gospel and to kind of teaching and to engaging their neighbors for a really, really, really long time. There's a rich, beautiful history of the church in Kansas City, and there's kind of a tangled history there. There's been lots of splits and divisions and launches, and some of you even have been part of uh, churches two and three times with folks that are in the room. Uh, it was probably about my fifth year here where I realized there was kind of about every eight to ten years, there was like a turnover in some, some churches, and people had been connected for a while, and then they felt disconnected, and they would transition and move, and some of them would travel together, some of them would disperse lots of places. And so there were these like Bible studies of folks who've been together for 30 plus years who were all part of a church when they first got married. And now, now they're going to spread all over the city, but they're still relationally connected. There's a lot of beauty to that. And there's a lot of challenge to that because what that means is you bring some of that story here. And if the gospel is true, and I believe it is, then what Jesus has done on the cross is powerful to heal those jagged edges and reorient what's been broken, and then really help move forward in what is beautiful. And so we have this big, small town. Lots of people kind of know each other from different places now landing here. And some of those jagged edges, though, feel like people see somebody they have conflict with from another life, another place, another situation. It wasn't here that that conflict began. It began back in elementary school. And 
I mean, we're, we're like, it's such a big, small town. People have like dated each other through high school and now are married to other people and then show up here and you're like, pretty cool, little awkward. All that stuff kind of happens in, in the church. And so I felt like we have an opportunity and maybe like a responsibility to just slow down a little bit and say, hey, what would you do if you were carrying stuff from other places? And, and like, that's not those people, that's you. All of us have stuff from other places. Even if this is not your small town, you grew up in another place or another, another city, you still have stuff that you're carrying. And so there's a lot in this passage about personal peacemaking that's really, really important. But there's something about the way Jesus talks about the church in the middle of this text that, that I think we have um, an opportunity to slow down and maybe redeem some of what we've thought the church to be and put some salve or some healing ointment on some of the wounds. I don't know if you caught that in this text here from Matthew 18, which comes right before Matthew 19. In, in Matthew 18, what you see is a progression of how do you deal with somebody who's hurt you, who's sinned against you, who's in a space where, where they've, they've done something that has pain attached to it. What do you do? And he says, well, you go to them and you talk to them. You just deal with it. And then he knows we live in a world that's not just that clean and simple and easy. And so he says, and if that doesn't work, they don't listen, then, then you actually come and bring somebody else in there with you, right? You're not alone. There's a promise of community. There's a promise of you don't have to be by yourself because peacemaking is really hard. It's hard with siblings. It's hard with coworkers. It's hard in marriages. It's hard in churches. It's hard with pastors. And so to hear Jesus say, hey, you don't have to be by yourself. You could bring a couple of people with you and they could listen and they could help you guys understand and it's a pattern actually we see in the old testament it's a way to protect people from being falsely accused or only hearing one side of the story you've been in that situation right where the first person on the scene proverbs says shares their side and everybody's outraged by what happened and then you hear the other side of that story and you go oh well okay well that that changes things just a little bit and maybe i'm still sad about that but maybe less less outraged by hearing the other part of this. And so it's designed actually for mercy and for compassion and for justice to, to not have to do peacemaking alone. And then he says, and sometimes that's not enough. Sometimes just bringing your community in doesn't actually give enough resources to solve the issue that God's designed the church to actually be present. So in verse 17, if this person refuses to, to listen, then you come and you bring it to the church. And this is where it gets weird. You're probably at this point, you're like, yeah, I'm gonna get my fraternity brothers together. We're going to sit down around a bonfire, we're going to talk about what happened, we're going to work it out, we're going to move on. And then Jesus says, well, sometimes it's not enough, sometimes you actually need the church to come in. And that raises questions, why, why the church? What's, what's the role of the church in peacemaking? Again, I think it's amplifying this idea of we're not meant to be alone, you don't have to do this by yourself. God's designed a community. And the church is both the people that you're sitting next to, and it's the leadership of the church. Right? So it's the church leaders and the people in the church. So it's, it's to kind of bring the body in, to bring the relationships and the family in to help. And in that family, there are people who have been given roles to help lead, right? The family has moms and dads and men to actually help bring about some resolution in some spaces. So he, he says then if they refuse to listen to the church, then, then you actually bring them to a space where you, you kind of say about them something that is heavy. It's, it's hard. You pronounce them actually not living in light of somebody who knows Jesus. To call them a Gentile or a tax collector is to say someone who, who isn't rightly related to God yet, who hasn't actually trusted in God, saying your behavior is such that it's not in keeping with the family, which is 
heavy. We're going to spend a whole week on that. Why would that kind of active love, which is what I think it is, to move towards someone courageously to say, hey, the way you're living, what you're doing, what you're valuing, how you're responding, is not in keeping with someone who says they're filled with the Spirit of God. And we love you enough to tell you that. The alternative is we, we don't love you enough. We love our comfort too much. We love the idea of feeling secure or not being falsely accused or not being uncomfortable in such a way that we're actually going to let you burn your life down. Uh, but instead, he calls us to actively move towards a person. And then he says, this is pretty powerful. Verse 18, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two or three agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by the name or by my father who's in heaven. For two or three are gathered together in my name. There I am with them. Okay, this text Sounds familiar to a passage we saw in Matthew 16, which we need to go back there here in a second. But, but even with whatever mystery is there and some nuance that you want to make about that text, at least see on the surface, the church is meant to have a space of authority. This binding and loosing language, whatever it means, however you want to parse it out, whatever denomination your background is that has given some definition to that, it doesn't mean less than having authority. The church is meant by God to step into situations and have an authoritative voice to say, hey, this is out of bounds and this is not out of bounds. This is bound and this is loosed. The church is designed that way. So now we feel all these tensions because the church is made up of these people in this room and with leaders that are fairly flawed. And so we spent some time last week talking about what do you do when the church has actually been part of the hurt? Supposed to do peacemaking in the church, but what if the church has been part of the pain making? Then, then what do you do? But, but it doesn't erase the passage, right? It doesn't say, well, if there's been pain involved, then, then there's no more help. Because it's meant to be a help to you. Jesus is saying in this space that's so difficult when it comes to conflict with people, you're not by yourself, which is what he means in verse 20. For where two or three of you are gathered in my name, there I am with them. Jesus designs you not to have to be alone because he puts you in a family to help you actually work out your redemption, salvation, gospel application, and your conflict. I think this strikes us with maybe a bitter taste in our mouth based on some of our stories and experiences, but I want you to just kind of move out of the kind of on the ground for a moment and look at 10,000 foot and say, what Jesus is designing here has something to do with helping us with the conflict and pain of our personal relationships. And he's given us a setting where we can actually get resources and there's somebody who can come alongside of us and there's a community that's meant to actually be a gift to us. I want to focus on that today. We're just kind of weaving together several kind of installments in this text, trying to take some time to build some culture as a community, to to name some values and some aspirational goals that we have as a people. We'll spend two more weeks. Next week, we'll just walk through these four steps, and we'll have you kind of imagine a personal situation, and what would it look like to kind of put these four steps into practice. And then the last week, right before Advent, we'll talk about church discipline. We'll talk about why God would design that, which is kind of and that would be a lot kind of scary, but I think we can look at it and that should then put us in a place to come into Advent, having talked about peacemaking, to talk about the Prince of Peace who's come, and we'll spend weeks just talking about how Christ came and as a fulfillment of the promises of the Old Testament to come and make a way for all of this to be true. So it's not just strategies and techniques. It's not just steps that we follow. Christ has done something 
inside of us to make this actually possible, which is what the passage says. So first look at this text. We, we look now at the or here, you remember the punchline of that text is that God has forgiven us an inordinate amount, a number that's almost incalculable. Blow your mind to kind of digits to the number He gives of ten thousand times twenty years' wages. That's how much God has absorbed of your debt, and that must then shape how you relate to people who owe you significant amounts, like like. 100 days wages. like That's not something small. And what he's been saying is, as we think about moving forward, the gospel and the good news of you being forgiven is the epicenter of it all. It's not techniques and it's not strategy. It's not even the church. The church is not the epicenter. The good news of the gospel that the church proclaims is the epicenter about how you actually move forward in your peacemaking. But in that space, Jesus has designed us good in the church to come alongside these tricky, difficult, painful, complicated, maybe layered situations. And I was just mindful that if you've grown suspicious of the church, you'd be quick to maybe dismiss the good news of this passage and therefore would limit the help God wants to give you when it comes to the painful things you're carrying around. I mean, what a fascinating strategy of our enemy to have things just brewing for maybe like millennium or centuries or decades to where things would actually be spring-loaded in 2020 when the pandemic would highlight all the ways that the institutions we hold dear were beginning to crumble. Right? Politics, right? we vote on Tuesday, that whole institution that God designed with government, man, just blew the wheels off. The whole thing just exposed as falling apart. All the conflict that exists in our country. Families faced a lot of tension in that space. And the church, the other institution, got exposed in some spaces where it had gotten in bed with other kinds of power and people were just reeling. The things God designed to actually be a gift to you, a family and church and, and the government actually felt really shaky. And I don't think we've like repaired that. I don't think two years and all the political ads has made you like more confident in where we are. I think it's actually just driven us, uh, driven us, drifted us, Drafted us. It's drafted us farther and farther apart. And you carry some of that in here. So as a shepherd, again, for this people. And I realize there's people watching online. Some of you um, aren't able to be here physically, and we love you and are for you and pray for you. Some of you are checking out church online, wondering if you can actually trust it again. You're kind of putting your toe in the water, going like, is this actually a place where I could feel safe? And safety will never save us, but I understand where the question comes from. So how can I actually trust a people again? So, so I wanted just to talk, and I want you to have in your mind the reason why your pastor is slowing down and messing up text and messing with the whole reading schedule is because I believe God has a good for us in the church, and I think there's a growing suspicion about the church. And I think some of that's well-deserved. I think there's places where we have not acted in ways that are in keeping with what the scriptures say the church is about. You can see that as God's discipline and his love for his people to expose and correct that, but it's still really painful. I mean, even if you're like a silver lining in the cloud, that cloud is still pretty dark. So we won't unravel all of it, but I want to just let you know that's what's driving me because the imperfect place of the body of Christ is meant to be a space of healing, and I want to just talk about that. So let me just talk about what God has promised 
and then like how he has going to fulfill that and how that's a good news. Simply what he's promised is from this text in context that you don't have to be alone. He's given us people that are filled with his spirit to actually be able to bring things to. God's designed us not to be alone. Our salvation is not an independent exercise. It's not meant to be something that's just us and God by ourselves. It's meant to put us into a family. The Bible uses metaphors for the church. It uses a body. So interconnected parts that are interdependent with each other, that, that work and function together. There's a, a, a belonging, there's a seeing, there's a benefiting, there's a, a functioning together. Uses illustrations of a building, of a, of, a, of a thing that's built on the cornerstone of Christ, but it has these parts that come together and show something beautiful to the world. It's, a, it's called a family. We come together as brothers and sisters, there's parents in the family, He's designed us actually in that space to be welcomed and um, in relationship. And he uses a romantic illustration of a, of a bride and a groom. He, he is the groom coming after his bride, which speaks of God's love for the church, God's desire for the church. And so, so those things set us up to say there's something about his design for the church that actually is for our good. And it's good that we're not alone. And he says that he is with us. So the two things I want you to see is that that we're not alone. And he promises to be with us as we gather in the church. So it's not just you're not alone because of these other humans. Although that's really beautiful and really valuable. You're also not alone because Christ himself through his spirit is here with us. So the family has some, some ballast. It has some hope. It has some way to move forward. I simply want to make that that point. The Bible says a lot about the church, but surprisingly, Jesus doesn't mention it specifically very often. In fact, in the Gospels, you only see it twice, and both of them are in Matthew. One in this passage in verse uh, chapter 18, where it talks about bringing it to the church. And the other one is what we saw in chapter 16, where Peter has this confession of Jesus as the Messiah, and he says, that's right, Peter. And God's revealed this to you, and on this, I'm going to build my church. And you get the same language in chapter 16 as you do in chapter 18 of this binding and loosing. And so you have these two bookends from chapter 16 to chapter 18. Chapter 16, in so many ways, is talking about the universal church, all cultures, all time spaces, all people from different backgrounds and ethnicities belonging together in the family. And what makes them part of the family is the declaration and belief that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's the promised one. That's what chapter 16 says. And then chapter 18 puts it down in the local church. To bring your complaint to the church isn't to to go online to the world around. It's to actually bring it to a location where you belong, where you're known, where that story can actually be be held. So you have affirmation of the universal church in chapter 16 and affirmation of the local church in chapter 18. It's only two places that he mentions the church. And in both of those spaces, he talks about this idea of authority, of binding and loosing, of saying this is inbounds and this is out of bounds. So I want to just talk about like how God does that. God has designed the church in such a way that you're not alone. He can be with you. That's what he's doing there. And he's fulfilling that through two things, and maybe it's a hundred things, but two I want to highlight. One is filling people with his spirit, and the other one is putting a structure in place of shepherds to lead and guide the church. So let me come out of Matthew 18 for a second. Flip with me to Ephesians, 
which is a letter written to an early church. If you have a Bible in front of you, it's on page 977. Ephesians will be in chapter 3. So Jesus only mentions the church a couple of times, but as you walk through the New Testament, you see the church being born and being built, and the rest of the New Testament addresses so many things inside the church and gives instructions and hope and structure to the church. And we looked actually last week in our membership class in chapter 3 of Ephesians. It gives us like the purpose of the church. The purpose of the church is to declare to the universe that God is a promise-keeping God to reconcile people to himself. Chapter 3, it talks about this mystery of, of Gentiles being brought in and being part of the family. Those that were once on the outside now are on the inside. And the church is this expression of that. It's meant to be this thing you can look at to go, oh my gosh, God is the kind of God who takes outsiders and he welcomes them on the inside. And the word mystery is used there not to say something that's like a riddle, but something that was, was previously concealed that now has been revealed, which means it always was God's plan. In Christ, he actually now made a bride for himself. He put a body together. He began to build a building on himself as the cornerstone to welcome those that are on the outside. That's a rough summary of chapter 3. And he says that in Christ, these unsearchable riches are on display in the church. And so if you look down in verse 9, it says these unsearchable riches of Christ have been brought to light for everyone what is plain in the mystery of hidden for ages, God who created all things, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom, the, the expression of the wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to his eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus. It's all about him. He's the gravitational center. Christ kept his promise to make a people, and in the church is where we actually see it. So we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Again, we're not alone. We're part of a family. He's present with us. And then he has this prayer that we would know how much he loves us. And then in chapter 4, he begins to talk about the way the church is designed to work. He tells us in verse 1 to walk in a manner worthy of this redemption, to, to live out this gospel truth, which is what he was saying in Matthew 18. Hey, there's a peacemaking deal you've got to work through. Start with the idea that God has forgiven you. That's the foundation of what the church is built on. These, these keys that Jesus says he gives to Peter and his apostles and disciples is this confession of who Christ is. They're gospel keys. You have access to God the way you have access through keys through the good news of the gospel. That's what gets you into the family in contrast to your background or heritage or your behavior, your good works, your hard effort, your right doctrine. It's through trusting that Jesus is the one who died in your place to forgive the debt that you owe. That's the good news of the gospel, and that's what the church is actually built on. And to the degree the apostles represent that and reflect that, they are, they are binding and loosing with the authority that's rooted in that good news of the gospel. Okay, so, so when he says, I want you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling, it's that calling. Walk in a way that reflects the idea that God has kept his promise to reconcile the people and he forgave you at great expense to himself and he, he's called you into this family and you didn't earn it or deserve it. And that radically shapes how you see everybody. Those who hurt you, those who have needs, those who you admire, those who you long to be close to, those who you want to distance yourself from, the gospel shapes everything. And so he says, he says, learn to walk in a way that reflects that good news. And he says it's going to look like humility and gentleness and patience. We're going to bear with one another in love. 
And then he says we should actually move towards unity of the Spirit in verse 3. And then he says this, there is just one body and, and one Spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Do you hear just the unity over that? The oneness of that? The, the unifying presence of God in the middle of that? He's saying the church is meant to embody this kind of unity. And again, we just put an asterisk there and go, gosh, man, do we struggle with that. Man, do we struggle to live into this calling that God has placed on us, to walk in a manner worthy of that. Isn't the old way of competition and um, comparing and getting and kind of earning, isn't that just so present in our hearts? And how is it compounded with these stories that we're a part of where you carry childhood and college and early work and previous church situations, you, you have a way of relating that can sometimes make this unity challenging, and yet it is something that he calls us to. Verse 7, he says, But grace was given to each one of you according to the measure of Christ's gift. So he says, I want to call you to unity, and then he says, Hey, I'm going to give you some gifts. I'm going to give you gifts out of this beautiful understanding of the gospel that's actually going to now shape the church. He gives an interesting phrase here to talk about Jesus kind of winning a war and it's like a parade that would go down the street and those who would, um, had won the war would pass spoils out. They would throw money and treasure to the crowd. That's the imagery going on in verses 8 and 9 that Jesus won on the cross our redemption. He defeated the ancient enemy and now he has set captives free in this war parade. He's passing out gifts. In verse 11, and what are these gifts? And he gave apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers. The gift are people, a structure, people gifted by the Spirit inside the church to help. And he says they're there to equip the saints for the work of ministry. What is this ministry? This ministry of spreading the good news of the gospel, of saying to people, hey, there is a way for you who are far off to be brought near. That's what the church is displaying, right? So this, this ministry that we're being equipped to is to spread the good news of the God who came to reconcile his enemies, which you can understand then the threat to disunity in the body to that declaration and message. You can see why Jesus is concerned about this, why he wants to give you resources, why he, he's saying you don't have to do this by yourself, but you have to move towards peace because a lack of peace would not be congruent with this cosmic display of God making peace through people. Tracking with me somewhat so far? Ephesians 3, 4, that's where we are. All right, we're hanging in. All right, we're hanging in. All right, so the gifts are these roles and these people. And we see in uh, Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12, not necessarily roles, but other gifts. Ministration and mercy and hospitality and leadership. That God has given gifts to his people to see the church actually built up, right? So he says in verse 12, these gifts are given to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to this unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be like little children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. There's meant to be a stability in the church as these shepherds and leaders use their gifts to see the body built up as people are engaging and that brings a kind of stability, a kind of warning a kind of help against other winds of doctrine that would blow not just like theological doctrine but just like relational doctrines that like you don't have to forgive that person that person's beyond hope there's a ton of things that actually you might be tossed 
to and fro about. And he's saying as the body is built up into the fullness of Christ, we're no longer like little children by ourselves, wayward, tossed back and forth, but we're now part of the body. And this space that we come together then actually builds us up. Verse 15, we want to speak the truth in love. We want to grow up in every way in Him who is the head, who is Christ, from whom the whole body is joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. With, with each part it is properly working. When every piece is functioning, then it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So he gives gifts to the body to build up the body. And then it says, when everybody who is working together with these gifts in the body, when they're engaged in the body, it builds the body up in love. So God's plan to help you not be alone is to be with you through his spirit. And the spirit manifests gifts in your brothers and sisters that are in the room. So you actually have help from people. And he puts a structure in place with leaders who actually help equip the body for the work of the ministry. Okay, I think that's something that we need to sit into for a little bit because if you're suspicious of the authority that Jesus has placed in the church, then you won't be able to receive the benefit of that leadership. right? Because he says in Ephesians, I'm giving gifts to these roles to help build things up. And so if you resist that, by definition, you're resisting the help he wants to give to help you grow. Put an asterisk by that. What about leaders that are untrustworthy? What about leaders who abuse their positions? What about people who actually have stood behind pulpits like this and declared things that actually weren't true? Like, shouldn't we stand in opposition to some of those leaders? And the answer would be absolutely yes. In God's Word, we see Him describing what a good, healthy shepherd should look like. And we see warnings against unhealthy, evil shepherds we see good doctrine and teaching and we see warning against false teaching so even just the narrative of scripture actually backs up what jesus is trying to say here hey the body is meant to actually be a a gift to you where people have leadership in the body to help you actually move forward and if you reject that you're going to be on your own he cares so much about that that he's willing to expose bad leaders He's willing to expose evil intentions. He's willing to to name and outline for us what we are looking for in a trustworthy shepherd. So Jesus gives us a space to actually be connected to one another, and he gives us a structure of roles to actually help us engage. And if you're suspicious of the church, then by definition you would be cutting off that help. That's my burden. That's what I care that you walk out of here with. There's something about the evil one's plan to make us suspicious, resistant about the very thing that would actually help us. And you can maybe have some metaphors or illustrations of, you can think about an animal that's been abused, right? And you come actually with medicine or food and they're angry and aggressive and bite you. The very thing that would help them, they've actually been conditioned to resist. You think about people that grow up in really dysfunctional, abusive relationships and homes and the way they just have a hard time trusting even those who are, who are trustworthy. And so we can see the millennium-long game that the evil one has played to plant distrust in all of us so that when it comes to spaces like this, like that I feel weird saying you should trust the shepherds of the church. Like that comes from thousands of years of situations and scenarios that have made us suspicious of authority. What a fascinating ploy from the evil one, the very thing that's meant to help us be built up, meant to help us actually grow 
he has brought into question. And me just saying that doesn't remove all the questions. I, I understand that. But, but I want to just kind of name that for you, which would let us actually then take a step to, well, what does he actually describe these shepherds as? If the church is meant to have an authority that's helpful, and they're meant to actually bind and loose and say this is in bounds and this is out of bounds, how do we know? Because the Bible is full of untrustworthy leaders. And I, I think actually that should comfort you, that God is not writing some propaganda material here saying everything is always awesome and up and to the right. He's actually exposing almost to a person the feebleness and the frailty, which says our hope is never actually in the shepherds, it's in the great shepherd of the sheep. But the great shepherd of the sheep has designed the fold to have under shepherds that help kind of lead God's people. And so I want to just like name some passages. For the sake of time, I won't read through them very well. I'll put them in the newsletter for you. But God has given us a massive gift. I find them incredibly encouraging and challenging to read descriptions and warnings and frameworks for these shepherds that God has given us. You're supposed to bring your pain to the church. Well, who's trustworthy to kind of hold that? You see passages like 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus 1 that describe what a healthy elder looks like. And in so many ways, it's a stable dad. Somebody who's not easily angered, somebody that's hospitable, somebody who doesn't freak out with anxiety. So, so that when the kid says to the parent, you're a big fat poopy head, the dad doesn't go, oh yeah, well you're a booger phase, whatever, whatever. He like stands stable in that place. Right, to have dads who can actually sit in spaces where they don't act out in hostility, where they're not easily angered, they're not arrogant, they're not quick-tempered, they're not given over to, to soothing with substances, they're not violent or greedy, which means there are leaders that are like that. So when Jesus, through his Spirit, inspires this to be written to help the church know what shepherds should look like, he's describing for us what his design actually is. Leaders then look at this and say, this is what I'm aspiring to be. But the church is designed to use this as a template. Is this person self-controlled? Are they respectable? Are they hospitable? Are they above reproach? Are they faithful in their family? Do they lead their family well? Right? Again, are they a dad at home? If they're not a dad at home, 1 Timothy 3, 5 says, how on earth could they actually be a dad here in the household of, of God? So he gives descriptions that were not puffed up or conceited, that were thought of, well by outsiders that we're actually lovers of good and self-controlled and holy and disciplined. He's described for you in his church what you're looking for in faithful shepherds. Which again, I think is healing to go, this is God's design. It's the way, if you grew up in a really um, unhealthy home and you watched a marriage or maybe multiple marriages as a kid and you saw infidelity and you saw abuse and it's really common that you hit college and go, I'll never get married, period. Like, why on earth would I ever risk that? Why would I spend time with that? I mean, if my mom and dad couldn't hold it together, why would I think I'd be any different? And this is just what, this is just what it is. A lot of you carry that, that pain. You, you saw something that was really unhealthy, and it jaded your view to whether or not you even wanted to be a part of that institution. Okay, in the same way, I think the church kind of functions that way, where we've experienced pain and we just go like, wow, I don't even want to be part of, of that anymore. But stay with me in that illustration. When we do marriage counseling and we talk to couples about what should be, what God actually designed in oneness, so this, this mutuality of self-giving and serving and sacrifice, almost to a person every time what I hear them say is, man, that changes everything. 
I mean, if marriage is supposed to be that, if it's supposed to be intimacy and oneness and connection and closeness and service, not taking and getting and proving, if it's actually meant to be something that actually reflects the love of God in tangible ways, it makes the gospel plausible. Ephesians 5 would say we're, we're living out gospel realities in this intimate relationship which communicates to us that actually the love of God could actually be real. If that's what marriage is about, then it has a way of actually like putting some salve and healing on that experience we had as kids with broken marriages. Tracking with me? In the church then, when we see passages like this that say this is what it's supposed to look like, I'm praying that it actually functions with a kind of salve, that it kind of reimagines for us what what actually could be. In the same way, the biblical view of marriage and the beauty that's there to represent Christ's love to the church actually soothes and heals and inspires Actually, when we talk about what God has designed in the church is actually that same kind of soothing and healing and inspiring. Even this week in our Bible reading plan, we're in James chapter 3, and it says, hey, let few of you be teachers because you incur a stricter judgment. To hear God say, hey, I'm taking this real serious. And he goes on in that chapter to talk about wisdom that's from below and wisdom that's from above things that are like aggressive and they're competitive and they're envious versus things that are hospitable and gentle and open to reason he describes for us what it's supposed to be like which gives us a sense of like the longing for what god has designed because remember the church is meant to be this help to us so the shepherds of the church are meant to be a help to us to the degree that they reflect this good news of the gospel that's what this whole thing is about, right? That the first time we see the church referenced, it's in a declaration of the gospel. And the second time we see it referenced is in this explanation of the gospel. Like it's all about the gospel. So the degree that the shepherds are, are standing on the gospel, you have some sort of hope to move forward. There's a ton of passages. One of my favorites is 1 Peter chapter 5 that tells shepherds to shepherd in ways that they exercise oversight. That they actually are helpful to the people, but not under compulsion. To do it willingly, but not with shameful gain. To do it eagerly, not domineering. To be examples to the flock, because they know the chief shepherd is the one who they belong to. And it names anxiety later on. It names temptation from the devil. It names the, the need to suffer. But there's this beautiful portrait. In Thessalonians, we see a, a beautiful explanation that the pastors are supposed to shepherd like moms and dads. And like, like nursing moms, it says. I came to you like a, a nursing mom, like nourishing for sure, but also vulnerable. To lead from a place that actually gives of yourself in a way that, that makes you vulnerable. This is not with a pretext for greed or with flattery, not, not for glory, not to please people. And he said, and we also came like a father who came to exhort, who came to help, who came to shepherd, who came to guide. So, so pastors as as parents of the family. And that illustration would break down lots of ways, like every illustration breaks down in lots of ways. But the design there is that there's a goodness to the family when you have a healthy mom and dad leading the family. And he says you're supposed to lead in such a way that you're so desirous and affectionate towards the people that you share, it says in Thessalonians 2, 8, not just the gospel, but your very life. So God's designed the church to have shepherds that actually help the church be built up into this gospel story. And for that to happen, they have to embody the gospel. And I say that to you as a man who is struggling to embody the gospel, who believes it deeply, who I can see it being traced throughout my life. I can see it actually changing me in my reflexes, but I still know I have so far to go. And so I get to be part of the body. 
I get to experience the gifts of the body. I get to experience bringing my pain to the body where actually we get to help because Jesus is the head. Jesus is the cornerstone. Jesus is the groom. Jesus is the great shepherd. It's not the actual pastors, which maybe just transitions me to like this third point I want to make. Right? What does he promise? How does he fulfill that? How is that good news? It's good news because Jesus is the one who perfectly embodies all of these things. It's all his family. He's the cornerstone of the building. He's the head of the body. He is, he is the groom. He's the, the dad. He's the one who actually came and died in our place to make this family possible. Remember, the Ephesians text says that what's happening is God reconciling the world to himself. And in that ministry of reconciliation, he's designed us to be together and for the church to function with a structure that is beneficial to you, that actually helps you in the gnarly places of your life. And for that to happen, the pastors have to be overwhelmed with the good news of the gospel and have to preach to you the good news of the gospel so that we are a gospel-formed people. And from that place, actually, I think we have a ton of hope. Because the gospel even makes provision when we're not living a lot of the gospel to repent and own it and apologize and be restored. That's what the whole passage is about. The whole passage in Matthew 18 is about restoration. It's about reconciliation. It's about when someone has sinned against you, them actually having a mechanism to actually repent and be reconciled to you, which would be true in the church, even from pastor to congregation, congregation to pastor, and congregants to congregants. I know you carry a heavy story. I don't want to minimize any of that. I don't want to just like make it sound like if you just believed a couple of verses, you'd be fine. But I think what God has put in these passages for us that we just overviewed real fast gives you resources to grow into, to be the kind of person that's applying the good news of the gospel to the everyday areas of your life. And we get to do that together. We get to do it as part of a family filled with a spirit who is actually ministering to each other these good gifts to, to build things up. That's beautiful as it is complicated and challenging. We won't fix that in the next couple of weeks, but we'll talk some more about it. I care like what you're carrying, and I want you just to have hope that God sees you, and he's designed a place like this to be helpful for you. So as we come into communion, would you just be honest to where it doesn't feel helpful, where you need that gospel salve to be applied to certain kinds of pain, where even the inspirational idea of what he's designed doesn't match your reality, so you've got some spaces where you're hurting. Would you believe that Christ died on the cross to actually forgive you and forgive that other person so there's actually a way for hope and redemption to go forward? What you hold in your hand as a follower of Jesus when you take communion with the symbol of the broken body and shed blood of Christ is is how he made it possible for you to be forgiven and free, and that's where the good news actually comes from. It's not from shepherds, it's from the great shepherd who, again, didn't come with a lab coat and a clipboard, came on a cross. He didn't come analyzing us. He came dying for us. So that when he birthed this family, there was real hope. So I want to just invite us to take communion. Would you bow your head with me and close your eyes for a second? I wonder if you could just like name what you're feeling right now. It might be hopeful, but it might also be painful. Would you just call it something? And then ask Jesus to speak to it. And maybe you're not even a follower of Jesus, but he still cares about what you're feeling. The church has probably impacted you in some ways. You have ideas and thoughts, even if you've never been formally part of the family. Would you just name that to Jesus, even if you're not a follower of his? I invite you just to stay in your seat and pray and ask him to speak to you. There's prayers on the back of your bulletin that would give you examples of 
how to talk to God about some of those things, but I invite you just to actually engage this moment, even if you're not yet a follower of Christ. If this is his design, would he speak to you and help you? And if you are a follower of Jesus, would you bring in the communion line quietly, contemplatively, hopefully, this pain that you're carrying and ask God just to speak to you. Ask him to apply the good news of the gospel and his forgiving grace to what you're carrying to help you make sense of how to move forward. The church is declaring this good news and we declare it most clearly when we celebrate communion. His body was broken, his blood was shed on your behalf to forgive you, which is the gospel hope that we have. I'll pray, and then when you're ready, if you're a follower of Christ, you can come forward, tear a piece of the bread off, and we dip it in the cup. There's four lines you can come down, and there's a center aisle that has gluten-free in it. Take your time, pray, and ask God to speak to you. Jesus, we come now, we bring our hearts to you, and we ask that you would engage with us. Would you heal what's broken? Would you remind us of what's true? Would you minister through your spirit in tangible ways? For my friends who have acute pain, would you comfort them? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, come when you're ready, and then we'll sing.